91.7 WVXU is proud to support this and other locally produced podcasts through its podcast network for an easy-to-navigate curated list of some of the best local and national podcasts. Visit Podcast Central at wvxu.org slash podcast central. Welcome to The Twelfth Story, a podcast from the Mercantile Library, where readers gather to connect, debate, and discuss. The Literary Center of Cincinnati, the Mercantile, is a 183-year-old working library with more than 80,000 books available to members. The library organizes book discussion groups and writing workshops and welcomes thousands every year to its author talks, lectures, and other civic events. Harriet Beecher Stowe and Herman Melville, Colson Whitehead, and Zadie Smith all have spoken at Mercantile events. Located at 414 Walnut Street in downtown Cincinnati, we always welcome new members and guests. You belong here. I'm Hillary Copsey, book advisor at The Mercantile. This January and February, I'll be leading Reeling in Moby Dick, a discussion group tackling the white whale of literature. Joining us today on The 12th Story to help in that quest are Dr. Robert Wallace, an internationally known expert on Moby Dick and Herman Melville, who also happens to be a professor at Northern Kentucky University, and Matt Kish, a Dayton librarian and artist of Moby Dick and Pictures, one drawing for every page of Melville's classic. Bob, Matt, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to be here. Yes. Well, so what we're going to be doing this winter is taking a bunch of people who maybe have never read Moby Dick or read it and didn't like it or read it and got stalled. And we're going to tackle it together. And um, I was curious, what brought you guys to Moby Dick? Why do you why do you like it so much? You should go first. Well, uh, I'm older. (laughs) (laughs) I first read it uh, as a junior in high school and did not like the book didn't like the teacher. Um, But then I had a very good class at Whitman College in my junior year. Uh, Thomas Howells only had a master's degree, but he was a great teacher. And by then I had worked on tugboats, and that made all the difference. So I I could uh, really enjoy uh, the subject matter. And and also, you know, I'd gotten to know guys who work on boats. I'd become a guy who worked on boats. So I was all in after that. Yeah, you had gone and seen the world, right? That's right. (laughs) For me, it's actually completely different. Um, I came to Moby Dick through Godzilla movies. Uh, When I was young, my father used to take me to my grandmother's house. This would have been the 70s, when he would run errands. And this was pre-cable, so she had the best aerial. So on Saturday afternoons in Cleveland, there were these Godzilla movie marathons. And I was obsessed with them. I loved them. So I'd watch these movies, fascinated with these monsters. Well, one particular afternoon, my father was running late. And after the Godzilla movie marathon was over, the uh, 50s version of the film came on. And again, I was in elementary school, so I was uh, was a bit young. and, And I saw on the screen... You know, all these ships with rigging and people wearing funny hats. And at first, you know, I associated that with history, which made me think of school. So that was boring. Yeah, I tuned out. Exactly. But, you know, then after a certain amount of time, this monstrous white whale appears on the screen. So for my tiny little elementary school brain, it was like these two worlds colliding. Like you had the world of sort of reality and history colliding with these monster movies. And I was absolutely smitten. And so I hadn't even noticed my father came back and was watching me watch the movie. Oh. 
and he noticed how fascinated I was with it. And the next day, he brought me home this tiny little, maybe four by four inch square, heavily abridged version of the book. And it was illustrated on like every other Kmart page. Like Kmart or something. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I think they're called like little big books. And, and so that my first experience was this, or second experience was this heavily abridged version. But from that point, I was hooked. I think what it was, again, was the, the mythic nature of what I saw on the screen and, and sort of, again, that, that same mythic nature being echoed in the book. And it wasn't until really much later on, on many, many other readings as an adult that you know, more of the book revealed itself to me beyond this, this obsessive chase of a monster. But yeah, I, I came to it uh, very, very young in life and uh, well outside of classrooms. It's interesting that you were, so my son is actually eight years old now and reading the abridged version, he loves that chase aspect of it and the adventure and he's obsessed with Megalodon. So I think the idea of a giant whale is like, you know, a real life monster. It captures your imagination. I can see it. I can see the little boy really like that speaking to them. Right. But so one of the things as someone who... I mean, I've never read an unabridged version of Moby Dick, so I'm coming to this new, too. Um, I just, it always felt kind of boring to me, like maybe I had to. (laughs) And it's been comforting for me to know that the first reviews of it were terrible. (laughs) Somehow that makes me feel better about not liking it right away, but... But yet this, it's endured, and it's cited by so many of my favorite authors as, like, foundational for them, as inspiring them to write. What do you think it is that makes it, you know, that took it from not getting great reviews, not always being the most beloved book, and yet it's it's stayed a classic, it's still read and taught, and it speaks to you today? I think one reason is that it speaks to every age and every generation. So students now are finding very different things in it than was true in the 50s, 1950s, when it entered the... Um, Academy and, and became the great American novel. Uh, it was in the, uh, in the Cold War period and people were thinking about our battle with Russia, the, the, the mighty world war on the horizon, stuff like that. Uh, when the um, civil rights movement came along, uh, Melville's attention to um, human diversity came to the fore, Ishmael and Queequeg. Um, And when the uh, feminist movement came along, uh, people started, both artists and critics, started reading it from the eco-feminist point of view and seeing in a way that it's not about killing the whales, but uh, finding our place in nature. Um, And uh, when we have the kind of a post-colonial consciousness now, uh, when Melville writes as they're heading into the eastern seas about the all-grasping western world, um, mm-hmm. you know, that resonates in all sorts of ways. So I've been teaching it for 45 years now, and it changes every five years. And what's really great about it as a teacher is that uh, students find very different things in it. There's room for everyone because of the way he writes the book. Do you think he intended that then? You talk about the way he writes the book. Is that, I mean, do you think Melville was sitting there being like, I want everybody to find a space here? Yes. Yeah? Uh, The most famous line is, call me Ishmael, the first line. So when we had international conferences like 10 years ago when Algerians and Iranians began to come, they pointed out that call me Ishmael is different if you're Islamic because Ishmael is the founder of the religion rather than the outcast or the castaway. 
Did Melville know that? Yes, well, later in life, he became very much a comparative religion person, finding spiritual value in all religions. And I did some research and found out that the magazine he wrote for a year before Moby Dick had a long essay about the difference between the Shia and the Sunnis. I mean, he knew all this stuff. He knew that Call Me Ishmael would speak to Islamic people as well as Christians and Jews. That's fascinating. I was actually just in the, I I was reading it before you all came tonight and I was just struck. I made a note of how he talks about how religions, he's accepting of all religions and he's totally okay with whatever Quig wants to do. Right. He just, you know, wants to make sure that everyone's accepted. And that's a theme all the way through the work that keeps expanding. And as you get further into the book, it extends to the whales and the whaleness of whales as something (laughs) that is of comparable value to our own experience. That's a big leap for anyone in his age when the whale was a commodity to sell. Yeah. What about you, Matt? You, you, as a kid, you're, you're taken in by this chase and the monster. Why did you stay with it? I mean, when you're a teenager, why are you reading it again? Right. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, I've always been... I've always been a bit anti-authoritarian and uh, a bit iconoclastic. And I, I think I've always read, you know, even as a teenager, I've always read sort of jealously and selfishly. And so what, what helped me with Moby Dick, but really with everything that I've ever read is, and I think that this is echoed in the way that Dr. Wallace works with his students, is... I don't have any particular deference to these authors or these works or the canon. I, I read these books and I, I try to find in them what their relationship is with me and with me and my experiences, uh, me as a human being, my, my lived experiences, my own personal narrative. And, you know, I dig and I dig and I read and I read until I find that. And I think with Moby Dick, there were hints of that very early on, but it was this sort of tantalizing mystery. It kept me coming back. I became sort of weirdly addicted to it in high school because I could sense that there was so much more there and I just wanted to keep digging and digging and finding out, you know, what is this book really saying to me because I can't quite figure it out yet. But, you know, I, I think maybe the way to approach... Moby Dick and, and really sort of any classic that we, we all feel this tremendous weight of expectation to have read mm-hmm. and to have engaged with is to lose that sense of deference and, and just read that book for, for what it means to you. Don't, don't labor under the, the false idea that there is a right or wrong way to read the book, a right or wrong way to understand the book. Read those words and discover for yourself what they mean to you. And, and Dr. Wallace is so wonderful at doing this with his students. You know, they do these creative projects throughout the semester, and, and they come at the book in so many different ways. They, you know, think about the women who are never mentioned in the book, and he has students that will, that will work with that perspective. Think about the eco-feminist aspect of it. Think about all of these different things that Melville hints at and leaves room for, and that's yeah. sort of the magic of the book is that there's room for it. Uh, there's room for all of these things in the book. Uh, but, you know, so often we sort of feel like, well, you know, you have to read it this way or else you're not understanding it properly. And I, I never had, you know, that, I just always thought, screw that. <laughs> I'm reading this. This is for me. And if I don't get anything out of it, then this book is trash. I can follow up on that if you want. I would because okay. I really like that perspective. And uh, I'm curious how your students, how you get your students to come to that because that's certainly not the way everybody teaches. <laughs> Well, um, I I think it starts in the book with Call Me Ishmael, which establishes a direct relationship with the reader. 
Um, and then there are nice hints that uh, what we now call in literary criticism reader response theory, where <laughs> what the reader thinks and feels is what matters more than what the critics and experts are going to say. So the, there are several passages in the book that are very direct about that. Uh, one, uh, when Ishmael's looking at the, the forehead of the whale, uh-huh. he says, I but put that brow before you, read it if you can. He, he wants the reader to actively interpret. And then Stubb, who's like the least intellectual guy in the book, uh, ends up talking, he, he's, he's looking at the doubloon and this uh, symbol that everyone's interpreting. And, and in the middle of this long passage, the longest paragraph Stubb's ever spoken, he, he says, books must know their places. We come along and supply the meaning. I mean, it, it's just beautiful. Yeah. Um, so he, he is really inviting the, the reader to find his or her own way through it. And uh, the good thing about teaching the book in college as opposed to high school, and this will be true of your uh, series here, is that you have volunteers. In the upper <laughs> division course, you have people who want to read Moby Dick. They want to give it a shot. And that's a lot different than being forced. For so sure. um, how students find their own way, one dramatic example, there's a tough chapter for many people called cytology. <laughs> I've the, heard that that is, and, that is the gauntlet. And that's where he <laughs> classifies all the whales. Um, and he's spoofing uh, classification by the scientists because they make, uh, you know, just like human beings, they put us in categories that, that deny our common humanity. Um, and he's thinking of that parallel when he kind of tweaks the scientists who overdo this. But also, you know, it's a challenge. He's, you're classifying the constituents of a chaos. I mean, that's what... You know, the whales are this great unknown thing, and like hardly anyone had ever seen a sperm whale when he's writing this. So, and if you the, see them, maybe it's just a, a tail just a or tail, a fin yeah. or something. Yeah. So you got this chapter that goes on and on about that, and some people give up, <laughs> and they never go back. Some people think that's the back. You know, if you get past cytology, you're okay. Yeah. You know, well, um, I had a freshman honor student a couple years ago who was a biology major. And, and she's in there with a bunch of seniors. And uh, as an honor student, she held her own. And she loved the cytology chapter. And she ended up doing a, a sculpture for every kind of whale in that chapter. She did 14 sculptures. Wow. And they were incredible. She did all this in, this in the last two weeks of the semester. I mean, she started earlier. So this clicked into her. And she liked that Melva was trying to classify. But she, she said this right away when we did the chapter. It's such a great chapter because he knows that it's impossible to make clear classifications. And, you know, he, he does that. You know, some have this, some have that. You can't make clear classifications. And, and, and this is what scientists believe today, and he knew that. So with her, her, her expertise and her right. background, she was able to read that chapter and, like, get the joke, basically. Oh, yeah. She got the jokes yeah. and also the depth of the chapter. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of helped the, um, the literary people get over the hump there to see a student for whom this... You can tell this really important to someone who knows biology. Yeah. You know, Matt, your, your book... Um, Moby Dick in Pictures, I think, is really helpful in visualizing it because most of your work is abstract, so it's not necessarily literally what I'm see, reading on the page, but it's like a, an opening 
Um, have you have you gotten that response from people, or why did you start doing it in the first place? So I'll, I'll make this story really short because I can go <laughs> on and on and on. So I had been making art uh, my entire life, ever since I was a child. Art has always been how I organize my experience and, and sort of make sense of, of the world. Um, and I'm a self-taught artist. You know, my last actual art class was in 1987 in community college. And so, I, you know, I don't have a degree. I don't have a BFA. Mm-hmm. So making art had always been a big thing to me. Uh, but uh, when I began this illustration project in August of 2009, uh, I, I had not really ever had any success as an artist, and I was ready to quit. You know, I had a job as a public librarian. I, I was married and still am to an amazing woman. There were all these other things in life that were competing for my time, and I thought, you know, making art is not expensive, but it's time-consuming, and so, you know, it's time for me to just quit and sort of move on, and, and Moby Dick was going to be the last thing I ever did. It was going to be sort of the way I, I went out on a high note and dropped the mic, and walked off the stage, and the only reason I did it uh, was for myself. You know, it was this book that had had meant so much to me throughout my entire life. It was really sort of a cornerstone of my identity and my experience, and so, you know, I wanted to end on something that would be almost like a capstone experience for me as an artist. And, uh, you know, when I started these illustrations, uh, it was purely for myself. It was a purely personal project. I had no idea it would ever get noticed or published. No one had ever heard of me as an artist prior to this. So I thought, well, I'll just do this for myself. And I started putting it online because my mother lives in Florida, and I wanted <coughs> her to be able to see it. But within a really short amount of time, all these people started coming to it. And I, would, I was getting comments on this blog from all over the world. And, and so that sort of led me to believe that, yeah, maybe there is something about what I'm doing here that is resonating with people, both those who have read the novel and who are interested in it. And, you know, my intent with this was always to create what was, for me personally, you know, my vision of the novel. It's by no means definitive. But again, I want to go back to something that I said earlier where I feel like Melville leaves so much room in the book for every reader, every artist, musicians, poets, so many to, to, to connect his words with their own experiences. It's so wide ranging. I don't think a definitive version of the book illustrated or as a film or as a song cycle or an opera is even possible. So, you know, what, what you see in my book is really a very personal look, but it was tremendously heartening to see the way so many people, you know, and I would sometimes get comments like, this is not how I saw this scene or this character, but I like what you did here. So yeah. I thought, well, this is really fantastic. We, we can all agree to have multiple <clears throat> perspectives on this. And, and that's, I think, something that really brings a lot of Moby Dick aficionados together, that we have these different perspectives on it, but we can share our love for it, even if we disagree. Yeah, that's interesting. I think enthusiasm is is catching, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, your love for the material comes through. And, Bob, when you talk about Moby Dick, like, I can feel your passion for it. And it makes me more interested in wanting to read the book then. And I, I think that that's probably an entryway in and of itself. I am curious, with so much room for interpretation, you talk about everyone getting along. I mean, is that true? Like, do people feel like they're... When, when you get these folks together in conferences, are there arguments over the right interpretation or the wrong interpretation? Or In class, there's a lot of room for people to disagree. <laughs> in the professional world, <laughs> you get more disagreement. It's interesting. So the, there are some um, people in the Melville world who feel that if you haven't read every little footnote ever written about Melville, you don't have a right to talk about something. <laughs> so those people get into arguments. 
And they will say, like, when I was going to take a friend to visit somebody in California uh, who happened to have an article, not against this guy, but in a journal that had an article against this guy, yeah. uh, so-and-so cannot cross my threshold. Oh so my. you get things like <laughs> that Lord. on the professional <laughs> level. But in class, you get great debates because there's so many different ways to read this novel. And, yeah. and you do get people who associate with Ahab or, or with the whale or with Ishmael or Queequeg, you, you, can, you can gravitate to different parts of the book. So, um, but they tend to be, you know, healthy conversations in a classroom. It's really the professionals who get all hooked up. Yeah. It's interesting. Academics, cutthroats. Yeah. It's <laughs> brutal. I uh, actually was just struck uh, in my reading this afternoon about they, they haven't, we haven't seen Ahab yet. I'm not there, but we've oh. been introduced to him through the other captains. And they, there was a bit about how um, it's better to have a moody, a good moody captain than to have a bad laughing one. And I thought that is just good life advice right oh. there. It might be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, felt, it feels to me like I, I'm already getting that. Um, feeling that you're talking about of feeling like I see my life reflected in it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I can, there are bits and pieces that I'm like, Oh, that's such a true sentence or, or that like that line, like that's just good advice. I should tell my kids that. Um, I, I am curious though, if you think that there are things that people do get wrong about Moby Dick, do you, are, are there things that you hear people say that you're like, Oh, clearly they've never, had someone well, really. I'm very think, curious what your perspective will yeah, be on this. Yeah, well, I, I think people get some things wrong about Moby Dick who've never read it or finished it. <laughs> I mean, so many people talk about it without really knowing it. Yeah. Um, in terms of people who've actually read it and interpreted, some interpretations are better than others. I mean, uh, I think it's helpful to have somebody who's really ingested the whole book and has a holistic view of it. Um, I think, for me, I have trouble with people who who make an absolute hero out of Ahab, uh, but you know it can be read that way. Um, and Ahab's making kind of a comeback right now. I mean, it, it's really interesting how interpretations change and how there's so much room to bring your own experience to it. So, it's almost like the book is a mirror yeah, for our times. It and really for the is. Reader. So I I think I, I would tend to say an uninformed um, interpretation is more likely to be wrong, but if it's an informed interpretation, uh, let's see what somebody makes of it, because yeah. you keep getting surprised. I mean, Matt came out of the blue. <laughs> you know? Here this guy, I thought yeah. I knew the field of literature and the arts. Yeah. Right. And here's a major contribution just shows up. And, you know, so um, it's amazing the variety of approaches that keep coming along. So it's almost like the wrong ones don't matter because there's so much more interesting. There's always new stuff coming along. So you don't I sit like there that. worrying about the wrong stuff. I am curious about the, I don't, I don't mean to cut you off. No, that, no, but I, I am curious about the, I guess that aspect of like wrong impressions that people get, the people who haven't read it that are like, Oh, Moby, like I'm sure people said to you like, Oh, right. Moby Dick, really? I'm not going to go down that road with you. Yeah. So what do you think holds people back other than that the Cytology chapter? I mean, I, I think, first of all, just the size 
Yeah. It, it is a massive book. It's not an easy read. It's a time-consuming read, and, and we are all generally very busy, so it can be difficult simply to find the time to engage with the book properly. And, you know, and I don't want to sound like uh, the old man yelling at the cloud, but we do <laughs> live in a time where, you know, most people are seeking out easily digestible small bits of practical information Moby Dick, as with much classical literature, even contemporary literature, any good literature mm. requires a sustained engagement. It requires, you know, some, some deep thinking, and it can be difficult to find the time and the energy to do that when you have children and a job and so on. Uh, my feeling is that the book, Moby Dick in particular, but really all literature, you get out of it what you put into it. Mm. Uh, you know, as with anything in life, as with university, as with your career, as with your marriage, as with your relationships, you get out of it what you put into it. If you are willing to invest some time and some energy into reading Moby Dick, I feel that it rewards the reader immensely. You know, the, the, a thousandfold you'll get back what you put into it. But, I, you know, I always do understand when people say, I don't, I don't have the time for that. The book's 600 pages long. That, and I think that sometimes we, as a culture, can have a real difficulty looking backward. So Bob mm -hmm. has gone on mm -hmm. at length about how, you know, the, the book continues to be a reflection of the times. You know, it was surprising mm -hmm. for me to hear you say that Ahab is making a comeback, but in, in, in terms of what's going on politically and even culturally, I can see that mm -hmm. happening. Um, and so, you know, we tend to think of Moby Dick as being anchored in this past, but in reality, it's one of the most modern books that I've ever had the experience of reading. So I'm curious about why <clears throat> Ahab makes sense to you. Because, I, you know, I think to, to be baldly political, I think we see this cult of personality mm. in, in the political sphere. I think that we are moving towards a kind of, of, of brash and arrogant uh, uh, populism where... Uh, you know, we, we have these borderline fascist personalities making mm. decisions for us. And, and in a sense, I can see there's a kind of relief in, in giving up decision making to somebody who you think is better at it. And, you know, Ahab is certainly monomaniacal and, and we can see that reflected in some people in, well, in Trump. I yeah. mean, just to, to put it out there. Uh, and, you know, he still did get millions and millions and millions of votes. So, I, you know, I can see trends of that coming back. And, and there's this weird connection with that kind of personality. I think it's a false connection, but with that kind of personality and, you know, this perception of what being an American means, gotcha. you know, that, that we are tough and we are brave and we don't need no books and we'll get the job done. And, you know, that's in a sense sort of what Ahab's approach is in some ways. And it's, I mean, it, it couldn't be more wrong. Yeah. But again, that's my personal perspective. I you agree. can certainly add to it. Well, um, it's anything about Ahab is complex. Um, and I, I think one, one way people have been coming to him in a new way lately is through disability studies mm. and seeing him as a d deeply wounded man and uh, who's not in control of his psyche and he's harming other people and he can't care for other people because of that. I will make a little sidebar here and say that we may be thinking about Trump that way a year from now. Mm -hmm. You know, if he, if he bottoms out... I mean, I'm almost starting to feel sad for how yeah. how uncluded in he is to other human beings right now. And that's how Ahab was. He had this obsession and tremendous drive. I mean, and and Trump has incredible drive. This guy doesn't tire out. He right. he's he's amazing energy. And so they they do represent something similar. And 
Uh, but with disability study, pretty interesting. I mean, this guy is with one leg and he's overcompensating and unfortunately he's taking out on other human beings and himself yeah. in addition to the whale. And the worst thing about it is, I think, about the whole situation is he, he defines the whale as evil yeah. for taking off his leg. But the whale was only defending himself after Ahab attacked him, attacked which, him right. which Ahab never <laughs> realizes. You right, know, yeah. I mean, there's this huge gap there. Yeah. That's kind yeah. of a sad gap in a way when you think about it and yeah. think about how he, how much damage he does to himself and everyone else around him. And, yeah. uh, you know, so this is kind of interesting. I mean, because Melville knew people are like that and that leaders can be like that. So it's funny you bring that up. I, I was just struck. I was just struck by the description of him as being sick, but not. In fact, mm -hmm. he's, he's well, but he doesn't look it. Right. Or vice versa. He's, he looks well, but he's not. Yeah, and I right. was like, that's, that's mental health right there. Right, the, right. In, you know, <clears throat> the 19th century, we're talking about mental health. It's right. amazing. Well, and, and the whole, uh, this is a case in monomania. Melville uses that word. And the, there's a lot of interest in insanity and madness and what mm -hmm. it means. Um, Jericho, the painter, did great works in the 19th century, and, and other writers, Balzac and others, were starting to look into that, and even Hawthorne in The Scarlet Letter with mm -hmm. Chillingworth. So there, there was all this interest in obsessions. Um, so I, I, I've got another interesting parallel for the return to Ahab, and that is um, in Robert Del Tredici, the artist who was with Matt in the two-man show here in Cincinnati two years ago. Yep. Del Tredici started off an Ishmael man. He's, he's got a, a, a roving imagination and just sparking off of the whole universe and, and very expansive. Um, and he hated Ahab. He couldn't deal with Ahab for, you know, he, he did like 70 drawings in the 60s when he was a, a young guy. Um, I was young in the 60s too, I remember <laughs> that. And, and then he did a new series of screen prints around 2000. And he was still avoiding Ahab because he just Not couldn't deal with that personality. It was so nasty, so so unsympathetic to the way he saw the world. Um, but in this last series of metallic engravings, we're going to have some of them here. Yes. Uh, he starts engaging with this guy and figuring out what it's all about. So like, we'll probably have one work in the show. It's a scary as hell uh, drawing where it's a close up on the, on the face and it's kind of abstracted and you feel the man's madness in the rawest kind of way. And, and like Matt, he, he always has a quote from the novel along with his drawing. And this one is the moment after he's been attacked from Moby Dick. This is in the past. Mm -hmm. we, we don't get to it until chapter 41 or something, this flashback, where um, he, he's in a hammock for like a year going all the way home without a leg. Can yeah. you imagine that situation? No. When, when his torn body and gashed soul bled together and made him mad. Oh dear. There's the heart of Ahab's disability and the mental bled over from that. Yeah. And Del Tredici, after 50 years of making art about this guy, finally felt Found a way sympathetic to to enough to the guy in there. 
and uh, to be able to do this powerful thing. So, and, and another parallel is, is Jake Hagee, who's written the great Moby Dick opera that I hope will come to Cincinnati. Um, they're, they've thought about bringing it, and I hope they do. The librettist had written a whole libretto, mm -hmm. and they'd been in Nantucket together, learned about whaling and all that. He couldn't start the opera until he figured out how to deal with Ahab. And it took him months. He had, he had the hugest composer's block in his life because of Ahab. And then he finally read the sunset chapter where Ahab's saying, I, I leave a white and turbid wake behind me. He, he realizes that he's blighting the world that he's sailing through. And, and the, the, the beautiful light of the sunset lights not me. Mm -hmm. And um, the, his articulation of his lack of, of um, I don't know, humanistic presence, uh, that allowed Hagee to relate to him. So he, he wrote that aria and then went back and wrote the whole opera. Wow. So those are two artists who were just had a big block by Ahab. And yeah. it's, it's hard to deal with. <coughs> I'm glad you brought up the art that's going to be on display here at the Mercantile. We'll have Matt's book on display um, all through January and February. Um, we'll also have, thanks to NKU, um, we'll have um, a selection of prints from Del Tredici um, and a variety of other artwork from your own collection. We'll have some right? student artwork yeah, here too. Student artwork. Yes. So we're really excited about it. We're trying to give people lots of ways into the book. Good. Um, good. So I am curious. Um, I want to know kind of some personal favorites from you guys, but before we get to that, I want to talk a little bit about Melville. He actually spoke here at the Mercantile Library 161 years ago, I think. Um, I honestly don't know very much about him. I know he loved Nathaniel Hawthorne, dedicated <laughs> the book to him, um, but that's about all I know. How did he manage to write this book? So I'll go first because my answer will Good. be the shortest. <laughs> I know, you know, for someone who has read this novel a number of times and, and read a, a great deal of Melville, I know shockingly little about him as a human being. And I have, I, I mean this with no disrespect, I've never really cared to. I do understand that learning more about a writer or an artist can add uh, new perspectives to engaging with their work. But my experiences with, with his writing have always been so deeply personal and so rich and validating that I've never really felt the need to learn more about him or where he's coming from. So I've picked up bits and pieces from here and there, and I've learned a lot from, from Dr. Wallace. But, you know, I, I don't know much about him. And, and when I was working on these illustrations, my studio was actually a closet. <clears throat> it was a walk-in closet, and I had a drawing table in there, and I would go in there and shut the door. And I had taped up a, a, a Xeroxed, uh, image of Melville to mm -hmm. the to the wall right in front of my face, and I, I'm sure that the Melville who exists in my head is vastly different than the real Melville. But he became sort of a guiding light to me. But he was completely self-imagined. I'm curious. Do, <clears throat> do his other works speak to you as much as this one? Not as strongly. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they they all do. He is certainly one of my three. Uh, I don't want to just say favorite. That's such a silly word. But he, he's an he's one of three authors whose work has has meant a great deal to me. But Moby Dick is certainly the 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 crown jewel of, yeah. of what he's written. That and perhaps Bartleby. Yeah. Who are the other two authors? One, uh, Joseph Conrad. Okay. And the other, you may have heard of him because librarians and, and people who read a lot have, but most of the time when I say this name, I get blank stares. Mervyn Peake. Mm. Yeah. 
Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. So what, what should we know about Melville? Well, I think uh, a very important thing about Matt, he mentioned that he's self-taught as an artist. Mm -hmm. And Melville was self-taught as a writer. Okay. He barely got through high school because he had to work in a bank. His father died and the family was poor and all that. And uh, he, he did not go to college. Uh, he could not make money. He was in desperate situations. So he went whaling for three years. And he said in one of the chapters, the whale ship was my Harvard and my Yale. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think one of the most important things about him, I hate to say this as a college teacher, <laughs> but he could not have written Moby Dick if he'd gone to Harvard and Yale because he got raw experience direct experience with the universe of uh, sailing the South Seas, hunting whales, and with people from all over the world on those whale ships. The, uh, that was the key, really. He, he got a direct in touch with the universe um, and with the uh, broad variety of, of human beings and belief systems. And that was what he drew upon for his um, greatest work and for most of his best work. So he was a very much working class writer, like man of the people's sort of guy. He was, although, you know, he, he, his father was a businessman and rode the tides up Broadway from one house to another, uh, <coughs> but went bankrupt. And, and so de Tocqueville writes about how scary America is because, um, you know, you can rise to the top economically and then the bottom drops yeah, out. And the Melvilles were an example of that. So he, he went to, um, you know, he, he was with the Albany Academy. He, he was with a, a kind of fine school, but the family couldn't afford it. And, and so he, he saw, he, he had a vision of upper middle class life that fell out from under him. Yeah. So um, he did really, um, I think, find his, his humanity and his community on the whale ships. However, when he came back, he was a voracious reader, mm -hmm. and, um, and he loved to write. He apparently started telling stories on the ships. And then, so the first book was pretty much, um, had a lot of um, oral uh, connection from, you know, from just his being a good storyteller. But then he, he just started reading so much he was so interested about history of our our history culture science um and one interesting thing i think about him for us today and i, I think it helps him in a way now for us as writers um when when he started to educate himself the the two the most important journals in america and in england were the athenaeum in in england and the literary world in in new york for which he was a he wrote book reviews for them and stuff and each of these journals what was called a literature or a, a journal of literature art and science so like the world hadn't broken into separate disciplines yet it was still a was holistic things, world yeah. <clears throat> And, and he just sucked it all in and didn't feel all these boundaries. And same way with human beings. He, he, he was forced to realize the commonality of human beings because, you know, on this ship for three years with people from all over the world. So this gave him a holistic view of things. And the other thing is it was so important. He was out in the Pacific when, when, when he jumped ship. Uh, to, to spend some time with the natives in Nuka Hiva, the, the French 
where uh, the French warship arrived in Nukahiva Bay the same time he was there. And so that's when the imperial armies of Europe took over these fine cultures that lived well by themselves. So and saw the colonialism. Yes, and, and then the American and British missionaries had always already been there, mm-hmm. uh, defiling the, the good pagan religions these people had and, and forcing our religion on them. So this bothered him greatly. He, he felt that these were crimes, the military and the religious impositions upon people's own way of living. So he really instinctively became a post-colonial writer in our terms today, Without critiquing action. this when colonialism was only getting its clutches on the world. So you, you had to be, you, you couldn't get that view if you were in Harvard or Yale. Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't be anywhere near that. So You'd be very... reading the Greeks and Romans and, and Latin and, and the old languages and thinking how great we were as Europeans, right, better than the rest the of the world and yeah. all that. So that, I, I think that, that was key. And, and then he was able to read and translate what he wrote so quickly. I mean, he wrote 10 books in his 10 years yeah. once he started. Uh, I don't know how he did it. It's like Shakespeare and Mozart. You know, mm-hmm. we, we spend years analyzing the stuff that they, wrote it so they had to do instinctively. They, yeah. they couldn't have thought out everything they did, which is true of Matt Kish, too. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. He has stuff you can really analyze. It's so beautiful. But he did one every day. <coughs> Dr. I, Wallace is a huge um, 552 days nice. in a row. Yeah. So he couldn't possibly have thought out all the stuff that my students savor. And it's incredible teaching his book because every student finds a different way through that book. It had to be a bit of a blur there by the end. Did you even remember what you'd made to begin with? <laughs> you know, what's interesting about that is that I can still, to this day, uh, almost 10 years later, <clears throat> look at many of those illustrations and, and remember very specifically what I was thinking and, and in some cases some of the events of that particular day because wow. it was that vivid an experience. It was an incredibly vivid, visceral and immersive experience. Um, you know, there are some places where it does sort of blur together, and, and in particular, the final three chapters, the three days of the chase, were a, sort of a maddening blur, because at that point, for me, the end was in sight, and there was a whole lot personal going on as well. But no, I, I, you know, I can remember the entire project with a great deal of clarity. It's, it really meant the world to me. So it's been really fascinating and validating and humbling uh, to see that, that even now, you know, um, seven years after the, my, my book of illustrations is yeah. out, uh, you know, that it continues to, to live on and that people still find it and engage with it and contact me and, and share their perspectives. It's, I never would have imagined any of it would happen. I have so many people <coughs> who stop by my desk and are like, oh, you got that book. It's <laughs> <laughs> truly. Awesome. Yeah, that, that's awesome. Um, so I, I'm curious about your guys' favorite parts of the book. If you had to, like, pinpoint like this is the part you should pay attention to this is the best part what would you tell people i'm gonna go first you want me to go ahead all right um it it, this is almost an impossible question because it's like asking a parent which is your favorite (laughs) child there are so many wonderful moments uh for me one of the things that continues to shine through um that you know that i always remember fondly that 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 when i'm feeling down i'll think about is, you know, early in the novel, the development of the relationship between Queequeg and Ishmael. You know, that, that deep, 
friendship that, as Dr. Wallace sort of hinted at, you know, crosses boundaries of culture and religion and even sexual identity. You know, there is such a deep and profound love between the two of them, and it really, to me, shines as one of the best examples of humanity in any literature that I have ever experienced. So, you know, it's not necessarily a single moment, but much of that develops early on when they first meet one another, and you see echoes of that throughout the rest of the novel, but, but the relationship between the two of them, I think, is an incredibly powerful and moving, and, and a real example of, of what we can aspire to as human beings in terms of how we relate with one another. Yeah. And it does happen fast and early. Mm -hmm. Very and fast I imagine and very it early. Drags, it kind of pulls you through the book, at least yeah. I think it will for me. Yeah, yeah, it really yeah. does. I mean, it's rather shocking and it, it's sort of you know it dissipates you know so many things come and go in the novel but it, it's always there yeah. it is always there and and of course at the very end i don't want to spoil it for you but there are elements of it in, even in the very last page so yeah. so that would be it for me one of the difficult things about the novel is that you come to care for that relationship so much and then once you're on the ship it doesn't get to blossom too much because once you're on ahab's ship Life changes. Yeah. You see these other ships where it would be quite different. Mm -hmm. um, so that, and that's hard for students. I think it'd be hard for some of your readers here. Why can't we have more of that relationship? Mm -hmm. More quick And And in a way, <coughs> I, I think, um, well, let me say first in answer to your question that, that my favorite chapters tend to change. And it's kind of humbling. Like the first time I taught it, I was right out of grad school. And I tried to teach it in like two weeks <laughs> to commuter students. I didn't know what commuter students, I, I thought <laughs> the students had time to read a lot, you right. know. So I had to throw chapters overboard. I had to give a list <laughs> of chapters that you could skip if you had to. And those include now some of my favorites, oh. you know, so like the chapters on the pictures of whales. Right. Sorry, right. Matt, those are, those are out. So um, w one of the key moments for me is in um, the chapter called the Grand Armada when they're chasing this whole huge pot of whales and there's a lot of carnage. They're trying to stick as many of them as they can, put drugs on them so they can't swim away. They come back and kill mm -hmm. as many as they want. It's a horrible scene and Queequeg and Ishmael's boat slips into this little calm pool in the middle of all the carnage and they look down and they see a, a mother whale and the baby next to it. And the baby whale is, is looking up at us as if we're a, a piece of gulf weed or something. And um, many of us feel this is the ecological heart of the book, that uh, the Ishmael, by this point, th this moment, he, he can't explain why this moment is so important to him, but he says, you know, it, it's... I can't explain it, but it's as important as anything in the whole book. We felt we were privileged to have this vision. So in a way, ultimately by the time, this is a little clearer when you're rereading the book, I think, but by the time you get to that point, I think it's fair to say that whales have uh, replaced Queequeg, or let's say joined Queequeg as, <coughs> as a fellow companion in the globe. He He has... Um, come to love whales and everything they represent mm -hmm. um, as much as he loves Queequeg. And that is a huge leap. I mean, it was a huge leap to love Queequeg. But I, I think that is what I think saves the book on, on the level of Queequeg having to take a back seat. He's taking back seat to something pretty amazing, a whale. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 
the the uh, the whole species of whales and what they represent and and they've they've come they were here long before we were um they're marvelous there's so much beauty and joy and power and they're not out to get us we're out to get them and that all becomes very clear as you get deeper into the book so the 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 change he goes through from being a whaler into a lover of whales yeah. a whale watcher a whale celebrator i celebrated tale is is hugely important and and we can appreciate that so much more now in the 21st century when you know then, yeah. the insurance companies everyone's borrowing the whales now to sell their products yeah but it wasn't the whale was the product back then yeah so before we, we wrap things up today, do you guys have any last bits of advice? I feel like you gave us a lot of advice for approaching this <laughs> book, but do you have any last advice for readers coming to this book? I would simply say do not be afraid. <clears throat> the book is a challenge, but it is worth the time, and make it your own. And I would say don't be frustrated. Try not to be frustrated that it's not like a normal novel. Um, <laughs> normal. A normal, yeah. like modern novel. Yeah, be, yeah. because um, he's shifting gears all the time. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, it's one nice thing about it in a way that all the chapters are kind of self-contained. And they're pretty short. A lot yeah, and some are very short. Yeah. Total. So if, if you kind of, you know, savor what you can when you're reading it instead of looking at all the pages you haven't read yet. Yeah. And and just realize this is a different kind of journey. Uh, let it let its own rhythm kind of unfold itself to you, and I think you will enjoy it. I would agree with that. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. I really really appreciate your perspective and. Uh, we're going to be fortunate enough, I think, um, for sure, Dr. Wallace is going to be speaking at our final session um, of the series, the Reeling and Moby Dick series. So on February 28th, you'll be speaking here at the Mercantile for anyone who has signed up for the discussion series. But Dr. Wallace is also speaking here on January 24th. Um, it's Moby Dick through a Nigerian lens, right? Mm. You and one Moby of your Moby Dick and Benito Serino. Yes. We're, we're going to deal with his second most important book that Matt has just now illustrated. And we're going to have some samples of that book here. And if we're lucky, Matt will make it down to Dayton for one or both of these events. I'll be here. So... Fingers crossed you'll be able to make the trek. Yes. Uh, nothing will stop you. So we appreciate your time and, awesome. and effort. Um, for all the listeners, thank you for joining us on The Twelfth Story today. To make sure you catch every episode, subscribe through iTunes or SoundCloud, and your good words are better than any advertisement. If you like what you heard, tell your friends or tweet to us at Mercantile LIB. Today's podcast was directed and engineered by Chris Messick. Special thanks to our guests, Dr. Robert Wallace and Matt Kish. The Twelfth Story is a production of the Mercantile Library in downtown Cincinnati. Our theme music was created by Doug McDermott. Don't forget to visit us online at mercantilelibrary.com. You can learn about and register for all of our upcoming events, including the 6 at 6 lecture uh, that Dr. Wallace will be doing on January 24th and the Reeling and Moby Dick discussion series. You belong here. <laughs>